Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell Staten, and I'm joined in the lab as always by my partner in crime and co-host, Arian Darby. In this month's episode, we dive deep into the biology of Spider-Man's arch nemesis, the alien symbiote known as Venom. We chat about astrobiology, extremophiles, that's life that lives under extreme conditions, and of course, symbiosis. I sit down with Dr. Heather Olins of Boston College and Dr. John McCutcheon of University of Montana, and they help us gain a better understanding of how life might traverse the stars to get to our planet and what the possibilities are when it comes to the bonding of distantly related species. So strap in, sit back, and enjoy, because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So over the past few episodes, we've explored many different corners of the science fiction multiverse. We've gone into Jurassic Park a couple of times, Walking Dead, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think this has been fun. But this is the Biology of Superheroes podcast. So for this episode, I want to get back into superhero biology. And I figure what better way to do that than to explore one of Arian's all-time favorite comic book villains turned anti-hero, Venom. So, Arian, can you give us a little bit of a background about this character, and why do you love him so much? Yeah, so I can tell you a little bit about it. I mean, Venom is one of my favorite characters because he is an anti-hero, and he wants to do good but there's a lot of internal conflict within him and when he first came into the scene it was, it was a really big curveball because he didn't really know what to make about uh, this character he would talk to himself or talk to his other that he shared uh, in terms of uh, body and mind space yeah, there's a lot of like wheeze yeah, going a lot, on a, a lot of a lot of wheeze royal wheeze happening and and a, and a lot of inner turmoil just in terms of uh, who he was going to be for the world because when it first started out he was primarily singularly minded focused on taking down Spider-Man Eddie Brock was a person that felt that Spider-Man in all of the incarnations whether it's the comic books or the movies uh, ruined his life and he wanted payback but after that is where things got interesting because the relationship of Venom and Eddie started to turn towards one of we want to be a protectorate of people that are in need and that can't help themselves, but we're not afraid to get a little bit down and dirty to make the world a safer place and sometimes cross the line for the greater good. Yeah, so it seems like you know the 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 symbiote at least. Well, I think it you know depends on the version, but the the symbiote at least. Definitely does not seem to have the moral code that, you know, I think Eddie Brock, at least in some instances, has. And they kind of have to sort of duke it out a little bit as to how they're going to resolve their their inter or intrapersonal issues, I guess. Sure. Yeah. It's almost when you read the dialogue in the comics or if you kind of listen to the things that are happening in some of the movies, it's like a, a bad marriage 
they're constantly bickering <laughs> in the midst of life-threatening turmoil, but at the same time, they're uh, fully capable, one uh, combined, to take down any threat that's out there. And so he really shapes up to be one of Spidey's most formidable villains uh, throughout the decades. And he's been a character that's been explored time and time and again since the 80s. And he spawned literally, quite literally, some other symbiotes out into the world where uh, they've also been as equally, if not more formidable. Because one of the things about the Clintar race that you kind of discover later on, uh, which is where the symbiotes come from, is that the parent symbiote is, you know, strong, but the resulting spawns are ultimately even stronger. And part of that depends on who they bond with and who they uh, ultimately settle in with in terms of host capabilities. But uh, as a general rule, they are some of the most lethal uh, entities in the known galaxy oh interesting so i mean obviously a lot of this this conversation is you know it's very timely now because the movie just came out uh pretty recently uh did you did you watch the movie yeah i saw the movie uh i saw the movie a couple weeks ago and you know i had mixed feelings about it oh yeah yeah definitely mixed feelings about it it's always good to see something make it to the big screen so that's something to be proud of. I think the casting of Tom Hardy was great. He's a fantastic actor. I think they really nailed a lot of the internal struggle, particularly when the Venom, the, the symbiote, first tried to bond with Eddie and the conversations that he'd have with himself uh, was was really like authentic feeling, I, I think, to the comic books. But, you know, the the big issue that I had with it was we've seen a lot of success with rated R films out there in the comic book world now between the Deadpools uh, and also the last Logan film. Oh yeah, Logan was amazing. Yeah, and I think there's a a space and a proven window for properties that are kind of inherently more violent and disturbing to step into that space and really own it. And I feel like Venom is one of those characters where, you know, if you you try and water it down and sugarcoat it and get it to a hard teen, then you're giving up some of the authenticity of the story and the experience you're trying to deliver. And there was a couple of moments there in the film where you had to imagine what was happening when he was biting someone's head off and you'd see like the scared look in the cashier's eye, but they cut away from the actual instance um, to, you know, I, I I think... There was an opportunity there in terms of the rating where they could have gone all in. And I I think, you know, maybe in the long run it'll pay off. I know a lot of the Spider-Man films, for instance, are always PG-13. And so if there's a chance that Venom can fit into that universe and world, maybe they scaled back the rating to keep it appropriate in that matter. And that could be a a thing that they took into consideration. But You think um, they missed a chance with this one, though? Yeah, I think they missed a chance with this one because they could have really gone into a, a pretty unique direction. Yeah, I feel I couldn't help but when I was watching it, I could not help but think of Little Shop of Horrors, kind of. You know, the, uh, um, yeah, I think that the interaction just reminded me so much of that movie with, you know, just like the symbiote, like calling, you know, Eddie Brock a punk and, 
you know, just like just like challenging his manhood and like all these various sort of campy ways. But yeah, I thought it, I thought it also gave it a fair amount of uh, comic relief from time to time, which which was cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so it seems like most of the iterations of Venom's origin story uh, it typically revolves around an asteroid. Like either there's a company that's mining an asteroid or asteroid lands on Earth, and that's typically how Venom gets to Earth, either by hitchhiking on a person or by landing directly on Earth via asteroid. Yeah, and all the modern interpretations, that's pretty much how it goes. I remember in the animated series in the 90s, uh, J. Jonah Jameson's son, who was actually an astronaut, was out there, and they were mining an asteroid, and then on their way back, it somehow hitched a ride onto their rocket ship and made them crash land into the Hudson, or actually on one of the New York bridges, and, and then eventually the, the ship rolled over and fell off into the Hudson. And uh, in the latest movie, the uh, there was that crash landing of the, the ship, and... And then and even everyone's favorite movie, Spider-Man 3 with uh, Tobey Maguire, right? They're on a date, Mary Jane and he are hanging out in a web, watching the New York City skyline, and this meteor rock crash lands into the uh, New York park that they're nearby, and it eventually hitches a ride on his moped as they come back into town. So there's always something extraterrestrial and... Uh, kind of outer spacey related to Venom's origin. Yeah. So even here in real life, I think asteroids have gotten a lot of attention lately. Um, you know, in part because there's this sort of, there's been a, a space race emerging across several different companies uh, in several different countries to develop technology for asteroid mining in order to pull valuable minerals from these objects that are hurtling uh, around the Milky Way. And most recently, on uh, June 27th, the Japanese space agency landed its Hayabusa 2 rocket on the near-Earth asteroid uh, 162173 Ryugu. Um, And it'll be on that asteroid, I think, for about a year and a half. And it's set to return to Earth uh, in December 2020. I think it's set to leave the asteroid in 2019, but it'll take almost a year, I think, in order to to get back to Earth. So that's pretty exciting. But on the biology side of things, you know, this also brings up the question, what are the chances of alien life being transferred between planets on such an asteroid? So just a few weeks ago, uh, a Harvard team of researchers uh, published a paper entitled Galactic Panspermia. (laughs) 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 One one day I'm going to be... Uh, mature enough to say that without laughing to myself. What better um, way to spread your intergalactic seed? You know what? That's too much. <laughs> <laughs> Is the Stills family show? Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, uh, galactic pants for me. <laughs> okay. The term panspermia simply refers to the transfer of life between planets. And this ties into our general understanding of the origin of life here on Earth. So there's one, you know, so one hypothesis is that that the precursors of life were here on Earth and eventually over long periods of time assembled into, you know, what we now know as life, like the very early stages of life. And then that life evolved into the many forms that we have now over millennia. But it's also possible that those precursors were actually put here by one of the many asteroid impacts 
um, that have happened uh, on Earth over you know mil- over the last few millions of years, and that those precursors actually originated on another planet. Now, the major conclusions of this paper were that panspermia is actually viable, so not just within our solar system, but on a galactic scale, and that objects with lower velocities actually have a higher probability of being captured by planets. But even objects with velocities of greater than 100 kilometers per second can be significant. So, but the major caveat here is that life has to be able to survive long enough in order to make that journey. And that journey can be thousands or maybe even millions of years. So I reached out to a good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Heather Olins, uh, who's a biologist who studies extremophiles. It's animals here on Earth that live in very extreme places. And I asked her a few questions to sort of get a feel for the extreme environments that something like venom would have to endure on an asteroid and what sort of uh, biology it would need in order to survive such an extreme place. My name is Heather Olins. Uh, I am an assistant professor of the practice, which means I am teaching faculty at Boston College. So I teach a variety of undergraduate courses in the biology department. Um, and my research is uh, on the ecology of microbial communities and specifically microbial communities at deep sea hydrothermal vents, figuring out which bacteria and archaea are there and what are they doing um, to influence their chemical environments and how does that chemical environment influence them. What's really interesting about these environments is that they host uh, a type of life that is different from all the rest of life on Earth. Uh, Up until the 1970s when these hydrothermal vents were discovered, it was pretty much assumed that all life was solar powered, so uh, dependent on photosynthesis, you know, like we eat plants or eat animals that eat plants and those plants get their energy from the sun. Um, But when these hydrothermal vents were discovered, there was so much living stuff around them um, and no sunlight. So scientists realized there had to be a totally different energy source. And that energy source is actually chemical energy uh, in the water, the the really hot fluids that come out of these vents. And due to the chemistry of the rock and the temperature of being sucked sort of deeper down towards the center of the earth, the rock and water interact and that fluid that comes back out of the vents has a lot of minerals and metals um, and chemicals dissolved in it that seawater doesn't have. And so there are special types of bacteria and archaea that do what we call chemosynthesis, where um, they carry out, uh, they produce energy from uh, interactions between these chemicals rather than getting energy from the sun. It's an ecosystem that is not totally disconnected from the surface because a lot of the organisms require oxygen, which is a byproduct of photosynthesis that gets dissolved in the seawater, but not all of them require oxygen. So you could certainly imagine uh, a scenario where you had an ecosystem that was totally functional, um, but there was no sunlight at all ever. Um, And so that's the sort of, that's analogous to the types of ecosystems that we like to speculate might exist on uh, elsewhere in our solar system, like on Europa underneath, you know, on those moons or planetary bodies that have, are thought to have liquid oceans that are covered by, you know, ice or something like that. So when we're thinking about the origins of the character Venom, like where this, um, this symbiote came from, you know, where it evolved, you know, how do we go about trying to understand 
what life in that place looks like. You know, and in real life, this is a, a pretty big limitation for biologists as well. I mean, there's this entire field of astrobiology where people think about what life on other planets will look like. But we're somewhat limited in our ability to explore this because we've only found life on our own planet. But by using organisms that live in these extreme environments and hydrothermal vents and deep sea uh, environments and cave environments, these organisms are the closest thing that we really have to understanding life separated from what we know on the surface of the planet. So I asked Heather a little bit more about how extreme life here teaches us about the potential for life on other planets. What do you think life on our planet can tell us about life in these extreme environments that we, we may find on like other planets in different parts of the solar system? Yeah, I think that's one of the coolest things to think about is what we can potentially uh, learn about life elsewhere by looking at our planet. And really, at this point, it's sort of like, how can we use these extreme environments on Earth to better figure out where we should look elsewhere in our solar system? Um, and so when we think about in our solar system, uh, all of those planets how past in the, you know, in the Jupiter-Saturn area, there either is, there's either too little solar energy to support any type of life that, that we could think of because they're so far away from the sun, um, or the, and or the conditions on the surface are just too extreme, too dry, too, too cold, uh, too, uh, no oxygen, no liquid, that we think there couldn't be any life there. But there are these moons of Saturn and Jupiter that because they're being pulled by both the planet and the sun, they do have plate tectonics, or they not necessarily plate tectonics, sorry, they do have uh, volcanic activity. We can see that uh, evidence of volcanic activity from satellites. Um, and so if there's volcanic activity and there's water, then there's the potential to be these underwater hydrothermal vents. So you could, it's very easy geologically to imagine an environment like a hydrothermal vent on these moons of Saturn and Jupiter. And so if we better understand, if we study those environments on Earth, we can start to think about how we might go searching for those environments uh, on, these, on, on Europa, let's say. Yeah, and so what's interesting about that, I think, is that once you open your mind to the idea that this extreme living situation for different uh, beings or, or, or entities as possible outside of the conditions that we normally think of for just human and animal survival that we're, you know, everyday aware of. Life feels a lot more possible in an extraterrestrial sense in a lot more imaginative ways than maybe what kind of first comes to mind. And so just even from a, an exploratory perspective with science, when you're looking at these different planets that may or may not fall in the Goldilocks region and uh, have this opportunity for life, we can dig deeper than just the surface level recognition that it's a planet that potentially surf uh, supports water. And like Heather says, take a look at the analysis of the plate tectonics and see if there's these other opportunities for life to exist in more extreme circumstances and so you know I, I think that's kind of fascinating to have that understanding that the concept of life can exist in much more extreme circumstances than you may initially think i think our understanding of the limits of life has changed pretty extremely over the last 
say, century or so. Like discovering organisms that live in these extreme environments has really sort of expanded our um, our understanding of of what life is and potentially how it even originated. When we were thinking about life traveling on an asteroid, I mean, obviously there are a lot of potential dangers. I mean, we so we talked about you know all the extreme environments that are potentially on other planets and moons that are um, you know that are circling other planets. But asteroids themselves, I mean, it's a pretty inhospitable environment. So I asked Heather a bit about what sort of dangers life would face traveling by asteroid and how life, including an alien symbiote, could potentially survive under such extreme conditions. Like space is, I think, generally unpleasant, you know, as a place for you know <laughs> life to try to yeah, live out. It's, I mean, it's beautiful, but certainly unpleasant. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, it could potentially take, you know, realistically, you know, many years, you know, maybe thousands or, you know, even millions of years for, you know, life on this sort of moving celestial body to get from one planet that, it, that yeah. inhabits life to another planet, right? If it can do that at all. If we think about life persisting on an asteroid moving through space, what challenges does life hurtling through space present? Sure. Um, one of the biggest ones is probably radiation. Um, without, uh, without a magnetic field to sort of deflect a lot of radiation from the sun, uh, it's a really harsh environment to be. Um, interestingly, there are certain bacteria on Earth that we know basically eat radiation. So there's extremophile microbes on Earth that uh, would be more than comfortable, uh, in all likelihood, living um, in outer space. There's other microbes that we know that people are just uh, are, are starting to learn more and more about are the microbes that actually live, the bacteria and archaea that live in Earth's crust. Um, and for a while, people weren't sure if they were actually alive or if they were active, but it looks like these organisms live life at such a slow pace that it's almost impossible to study them the way we study other organisms. Like, how do you study a bacteria that divides once every 200 years? Or does it divide once every 2,000 years? So we haven't figured out how to study these, but we know enough to know that they exist. Um, and so I think organisms like that, figuring out how to better study organisms like that on Earth might tell us, might, might help us speculate about how things might be surviving in outer space or could possibly survive in outer space. But basically, you need to uh, shut down your metabolic activity so that and, and sort of seal it off and protect it from harmful ultraviolet radiation, protect it from freezing. When organisms freeze uh, and liquids crystallize, that pops cells. So um, different organisms have formed ways of, you know, making a spore to sort of protect themselves from drying out or from ultraviolet damage. And so you can think about sort of extreme versions of that, I think, might um, might, might be what you would need to survive uh, in outer space on an asteroid or something. So if, if we go back to um, sort of thinking about this alien symbiote hurtling through space on an asteroid, obviously, you know, this is a living organism. At some point, it has to eat. and. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you'd imagine there's probably not much of an ecosystem on an on an asteroid, but I I've heard that there are microbes on on Earth that actually that they they eat metal. Is that is this true? Yeah, it's true. So, um, as long as there are different 
molecules that you could transfer an electron from one to the other, um, you can, in theory, get energy from that reaction that could power life. So uh, there are iron oxidizing organisms. Um, uh, basically, you know, you, you leave your bike out in the rain and it rusts. That's a chemical process. But there are bacteria that can do something very similar uh, and consume uh, metals in rocks or consume um, different minerals in rocks. And that solid state, you know, eating solid rocks is a really fascinating way of making a living. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. And there certainly are the right types of minerals on asteroids uh, to do that. I think the question would be, so, so there's a potential energy source, but um, is there carbon for cell development? I don't know. So maybe there would be enough, you know, you could maybe uh, come up with a sort of rock asteroid eating way of life that could keep enough energy being provided to maintain life, but it's hard to imagine um, being able to really multiply and grow and, and uh, do other, you know, I, it's hard to imagine really making a, a living solely on an asteroid. You yeah. can imagine maybe something hunkering down and having enough energy to get it from one place to another, um, but I don't know, unless we're talking about some sort of crazy non-carbon-based life, I don't know. I don't know where you would get the carbon to sort of um, produce a lot more new cells hmm. while you're on that asteroid. Yeah. So you mentioned this idea of of, of carbon-based life. Um, is it? I mean, is is there a possibility that you know an organism like venom would be non-carbon-based? Um, so this is definitely outside of my area of expertise. I know there are people that think about it, and there's people that have that think that there's a good reason why life on Earth is carbon-based, that there's a lot of different ways that carbon can bond with other atoms. Um, but people have speculated about a silica-based life. Um, so in theory, you could certainly uh, imagine a organism that is not carbon-based, but uh, I, I'm not sure what the current consensus is on how likely that is or unlikely that is. So I think Heather paints actually a really cool picture of what life must have been like for this alien symbiote traveling on an asteroid before it, before it even got to Earth. The sort of extreme environments and the extreme biology that it must have in order to survive in such an inhospitable environment. Yeah, not to mention, it sounds lonely. So <laughs> It does sound kind of lonely. Yeah. I can only imagine the strong desire to uh, pair and, and merge with a, a host, right? You yeah. Know, haven't had that contact in a while. Yeah. <laughs> you got real sensual just now. <laughs> <laughs> do that again. <laughs> Everybody needs somebody sometimes, Arian. That's right. We all need love. And I think that's the moral of the story when it comes to all of the symbiotes in the uh, Marvel comics. Yeah, if there's anything that we should be taking from Venom, it's that we all need love. That's true. We right. all desire to connect. So so speaking of, of bonding, right? I mean, this brings us to the other part of Venom's story. It's like after the symbiote crashes and he finds a host. Uh, we're going to go with Eddie Brock in this case. You know, he finds a host and they bond right and this is you know generally referred to as sort of symbiosis so in order to understand a little bit more about this idea of symbiosis this bonding between you know these two foreign organisms i contacted another biologist uh, and colleague of mine uh, dr john mccutcheon at university of montana who studies symbiotic organisms my name my name is john mccutcheon I am a biologist. I work at the University of Montana. 
um, and I run a research lab. And so in my research lab, we study mostly bacteria, but microorganisms. So my, things that are invisible to, to the naked eye, the unaided eye without a microscope. We study microbes that live in and on mostly insects. So in a lot of the things that we, we study, they're, uh, they're sap feeding insects. So these are insects that only, they only drink sap. That's their whole diet, which is basically like trying to grow an animal just drinking Sprite. Like it, it, <laughs> it's, it's not going to work. You're going to die. And that's, that's, true for, that's true for insects as it's true for kids. And so the reason that's true is that it's a really unbalanced diet. So it's, it's, mostly just, it's mostly sugar and there's very little sort of protein or amino acid in the – so the, the, the – the, the, the stuff you need to actually build an organism. It's really low levels. And so if you can't build it yourself, if you can't build these amino acids yourself and you can't get it in your diet, it needs to come from somewhere else. And what these animals have done, these insects have done, is they've, they've had these really long-term uh, partnerships with bacteria. These bacteria live in their cells, and these bacteria build the nutrition that the animal can't make itself and can't get in its diet. And... The, that's the only place these bacteria live. They only live in special cells in the insect. They've been living there for hundreds of millions of years, a really long time. Um, and, it, and things get weird when, you, when, when another organism lives inside of another organism for a really long period of time. So we study that process. And it's called endosymbiosis, inside, living inside something else. So this process that John studies actually, I think, pretty aptly describes what we see in the the comic book lore when it comes to venom this idea of endosymbiosis right this you have one organism that occupies and inhabits the body of another organism and they form this really sort of tight bond but typically when when we think about symbiosis yeah i think it can be a very general term right like when i think one of the most sort of classic cases now with finding Nemo of, is, you know, of symbiosis is like the clownfish and the sea anemone, right? These sort of two organisms that, that live together. But I think, you know, even in like corporate America, it can generally refer to just like teamwork. So given the sort of generality of the term, I asked John specifically exactly what is symbiosis and like how does it evolve? But basically speaking, what exactly is symbiosis? Yeah, it, it it's a simple. It's just two organisms that live together. That's really all it is. It, it doesn't say. <clears throat> people kind of use it now to mean like two organisms that are kind of good for each other, two or more organisms that are good for each other. But it really just means two things that exist together. Okay. So a a host pathogen. So you could have like a you eat a burrito and it's got undercooked chicken and you get sick from the salmonella. You know, that's the symbiosis. It's just not a very good one. So it's just two organisms living together. That's that's really all it is. Okay. So how so in the so for instance in the movie, like the symbiote gets like really offended when people call it a parasite, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, so is is there no real difference between parasitism and symbiosis? No. I mean parasitism is a type of symbiosis. Okay. But the but the, the interesting thing, I think, is that, I mean, this is actually related to the movie, I think, that, that the, the definition is fluid and can change, and it depends on sort of the context. So, so 
you can have an interaction. You can have a host with a bacteria in it. And in some circumstances, that bacteria could be bad for it. It could give it a mild infection. It could be sick. But in other circumstances, it could actually be good for it, good for the host, right? It, you actually need that bacteria there. And it, it's actually related to the stuff that I work on. We think, we have pretty good evidence in some cases, that these these bacteria that live in these insects that provide the nutrients, so they're absolutely required. Not only are they good for the host, they're required. They come from bacteria that were pathogenic to begin with. Right. Oh. So this so in a symbiosis you can you can be a pathogen pathogen, you can be a beneficial symbiont, but that can change relatively quickly. So it, it just depends on your kind of context. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. <laughs> so the, how does something how does symbiosis evolve? Like are there rules to the evolution of symbiosis? <laughs> there's so many types. Not I, I mean no, there's no rules. I, I think it's too broad. It's a really broad term, right? I mean, a, a lichen, which is a fungus and, a, and an algae living together, um, that, that's a symbiosis. It's just there's two things living together. They form this structure. You can see them on rocks, rocking rock around town. Um, the, you know, there's a symbi- you have a symbiosis with the, the bacteria in your gut which are actually outside your body, right? Because it's not, they're, not, they're not in your cells, it's outside your body. And then there's things like these, these insects that I work on, which have bacteria that live inside of their cells. Uh, so there's a huge spectrum. I mean, the, the only rule is that there's some sort of association that sticks for some period of time. But other than that, it's pretty wide open. It's a, it's a, really, it's a really fluid thing, actually. You know, as John said, you know, symbiosis, generally speaking, you know, seems to be sort of a catch-all, a catch-all term to describe a lot of different relationships, and you know, it can sort of change depending on context. But I think that actually sort of reflects a lot of what we see in you know the in the Venom comic book lore as well, and also in the movie. I mean, in the movie, we see that you know there are times where. Um, yeah, I think there's a, a scene where Eddie Brock goes to the doctor to try to figure out exactly, you know, what has gone wrong with him. And the doctor's like, there's something eating your liver right now. And then the symbiote's like, hey, yeah, don't don't worry about that. I just need a little something. I'll, uh, you know, you know I'll, I'll fix it later. Plus, you have these superpowers. So, you know, it, you know, it at the end of the day, it, you know, it all balances out. One of the things that John mentioned that was really interesting was that idea of the beneficial versus pathogenic relationship that a symbiote could establish with its host. And so when you have that meeting of of two entities, uh, which direction is it going to lean? And when you're looking at the comic books and some of the movies and the iterations of where Venom has appeared, you see both sides reflected. So when the black costume first got introduced in the comic book lore side of things it instantly was a hugely beneficial factor to peter in his uh heroics as spider-man right like he experienced an increase in strength and agility and power and speed and his webbing was stronger and the costume adapted to whatever he wanted to have happen uh in his mind and so if he needed a like a quick pouch or container to hold something like his camera because he freelanced photography for the Daily Bugle. The uh, symbiote created that space for him. Or if he needed to transform into a different outfit to go undercover or to look more like Peter Parker would in everyday life, 
he wouldn't have to change out of the costume and remove the symbiote. The symbiote would just accommodate that for him. And then on the flip side, you can take a look at maybe some of the negative aspects of what the relationship was doing, some of the more harmful pathogenic side of things, where uh, in the comic books, for instance, Peter was constantly tired when he first discovered the black costume. And it turned out that the symbiote was actually hijacking him during the night and taking him out onto these missions to kind of web swing around town and explore the city, unbeknownst to even him. So he was almost in this like sleeping nightmare of sorts. And all he would realize is that by the time morning came around, it felt like he hadn't slept in hours because he hadn't. And then in the Spider-Man 3 film, uh, Peter kind of turns into a douche, right? Like He's a huge <laughs> D-bag. He's walking Seriously. around. He has these like really emo bangs. And he's just being an <laughs> atrocious person to everyone near and dear to him. And he's ruining relationships in the process. And part of that uh, mood swing could be attributed to the costume where it kind of amplified his arrogance and his superiority complex and just kind of completely diminished his sense of empathy for people around him. And so, you know, there in lore always came a turning point where Peter had enough and he had to get rid of the costume. And it was a struggle because there's also this idea of, you know, and, and I think maybe we'll potentially get into this too, where the longer the relationship has been established, the harder it is to remove yourself from it. Yeah, and I mean, I think you make a great point there. You know, when when you have two things that are interacting so intricately, I mean, that I mean, there are a lot of things that need to 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 be taken into account when you're fusing, like seamlessly fusing one organism to another. And this actually, in my mind, brings up this question of like, can you do both? When we first see the the alien symbiote, it's you know, this kind of freeform thing that's, you know, that's moving around and kind of stalking, looking for a host. And then it does, and then it bonds with a host. And then, you know, in the scene, for instance, in uh, Spider-Man 3, you know, there's a scene where um, Peter Parker is trying to remove himself from, you know, the symbiote. And they're uh, in the bell tower and the bell starts ringing and the symbiote is super sensitive to the vibrations and it kind of melts off of them. And he falls, and then he actively, you know, begins to crawl off, and then seeks out this new host, which ends up becoming Eddie Brock, and then they fuse again, right? But this is a pretty; those are two really extreme lifestyles to to move between, right? This um, merging with a host and you know being this intricate part of a whole versus you know being an entity unto yourself and moving around uh, in in the wild. So I asked John a little bit more about this this sort of lifestyle switch and how feasible it might be. Endosymbiotes, like you were talking about, these, yeah. these symbiotic organisms that live inside their host. Mm-hmm. Are there species that can sort of pick and choose between being symbiotic or living on their own? Yeah, there are. I mean, there, there are, you know, bacteria and fungi that, that can do both. So they can move, they can move between hosts and they can live in hosts generally speaking what those are are generally speaking what those are are usually pathogens right so they're they're things that 
um, they they make their living by at least part in part of the time living inside of an animal or killing it, making it sick. Sometimes not on purpose, but they make it sick, mm-hmm. and then moving around in the environment. So yeah, there there's things that there's things that and like I said, these these bacteria that I work on, we think they come from those types of bacteria. So they, it's not like you know when a when an insect gets a new endosymbiont that it just comes from another endosymbiont that's impossible because these things are finely tuned with the organism they live in so if you want a new one it has to come from the environment if it has to come from the environment generally speaking the types of things it'll come from are the bacteria that are already good at getting inside of insect cells so they, they already live there at some part of their life cycle right they, uh-huh. they can jump around they can live in plants these things feed on plants okay maybe every once in a while you get one that causes an infection you know they sort of they sort of have this general um, lifestyle of living on and in insects, but they don't they don't necessarily kill them or they don't necessarily help them all the time. Okay, so even like the most specialized endosymbionts, like the things that live within cells, mm-hmm. you know they they're typically coming from ancestors that at some point can you know have actually like moved around in yeah, the yeah. environment and can make their yeah, exactly. have like made their way into that host. Exactly, we call them their free living ancestors. Exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because once you get in, once you get into this relationship with these insects, it's kind of interesting. You, it, what it looks like to me is that the insect very quickly takes over, and and basically domesticates this bacteria. And after some number of millions of years, it's so far domesticated that it's it's basically can't live anywhere else. So oh it's either wow! This, it, it's either this insect or nothing, or or, or extinction basically. Okay, and is the same true the other way around? Like, I mean, I think you you mentioned, but without but without the 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 endosymbiote, the insect wouldn't wouldn't be able to survive either. That's right. That's right. So without so it becomes a the really codependent situation. Yeah. So I think John. Um, I mean, he essentially backed up exactly you know what you just what you just said. In the case of the organisms that he's studying, right, the the host insect and this bacterial endosymbiont, they've been paired for a really really long time, and it, it seems like kind of in in a lot of ways this that interaction kind of reminds me a lot of you know of venom there's this sort of you know sort of struggle for power you know john mentioned this you know the host sort of domesticating the um you know the the pathogen and you know we kind of see that you know throughout you know venom story you know especially in the movie right there's this sort of ongoing process of eddie brock trying to you know, maybe not domesticate, but, you know, at least sort of, um, you know, come to an understanding, you know, with with the symbiote in terms of you can't just like eat people, you know, at least, you know, and I think they come to the conclusion that, OK, if you absolutely have to eat somebody, they have to be a bad guy. Right? And it's sort of this like morally still kind of messed up zone. Right. But, you know, better than, you know, better than eating an innocent person, I guess. Right. So there's this sort of ongoing battle of, you know, trying to, you know, trying to convey like some understanding, trying to reel this symbiont in and that you just can't do whatever you want, whenever you want. You know, outside of that with the, the venom symbiote, right. Like the fiction takes the step further and it really makes the case for sentience where the costume does a lot of amazing and fantastical things on its own. Uh, in the movie, you've seen it. Uh, in the uh, comic books, you, you definitely see it, where 
uh, it slinks across the ground in Peter's bedroom and sneaks up on him at night to basically uh, bond itself with Peter's body and take control or um, you know when separated it'll travel across distances uh, to reconnect with its primary host and uh, it, it does this out of um, uh, that need for codependence and that, that need for survival uh, and, and that need for matching itself and continuing to coexist with that perfect host. There was um, even this story arc for Venom called Separation Anxiety. And he, at one point, got in a battle with this hero, this character called the Scarlet Spider, which is essentially a, a clone of Peter Parker, uh, Ben Riley, And uh, Ben basically defeated Venom and separated the symbiote from the actual character of Eddie Brock and they both ended up getting locked up and thrown away into to separate facility prisons. High security powered maximum guard type situations, right? And at one point in the story, both of the characters break free by their by themselves. Like Venom as the symbiote entity breaks loose, as does Eddie Brock. But Venom actually travels across like multiple towns, maybe even states, and hitches a ride on a truck, and uh, you know basically makes its way back to its host. Uh, and you know just that that situation of, of codependence drives them so strongly to want to be reunited together. And you know, even though I, I think on such a, a basic level of, of, of organism, when you're talking insects and, and, and everything else, you don't have the psychological factor behind it necessarily, but you see that really play out between the character of Eddie Brock and, and Venom, where when they're separated, they had been together for so long that Eddie is questioning everything about his life and all of the actions that he's done since meeting Venom, all of the lives that he's taken, all of the destruction that he's caused, and you know, he's having a breakdown, and meanwhile the symbiote is being tortured and experimented with, and it's it's manifesting its own cries of pain to reunify with Eddie. And and so, you know, you, you see that idea of codependence play out in the, the comics and movies as well as in, in nature, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I also wonder, though, like, you know, when we're talking about the, when we're talking about the, the comic book lore, you know, when we see them separate, you know, we see that, I mean, obviously, you know, it seems like the, the symbiote, I mean, to a certain degree is, is dependent on having a host. Right. right. And then, but we also see this extreme physiological reaction, you know, by Eddie Brock, you know, this, I mean, obviously it's sort of all the, all the anxiety, you know, I mean, like you, I mean, it's, you, the, you said the story arc is called separation anxiety, but I wonder, given our last episode, I wonder how much of that is actually inherent like how much does eddie brock you know miss being part of you know this this whole the you know of venom versus you know how much of this is you know host manipulation right by the symbiote itself you know i mean you're talking about an organism that's tapped into your brain for you know maybe they've been paired together for years and maybe flooding dopamine you know making dopamine flood into your brain giving you sort of positive reinforcement and kind of drugging you up you know, saying, "Oh yeah, being part of this whole is great," but then when you when you separate, you know, maybe you know, a lot of that anxiety that we're seeing, you know, this uh, sort of stress response is, 
you know, it's kind of like a, a a drug addict coming down from a high. Yeah. So, I mean, is that even possible, though? Do we see examples of that in nature? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, we talked plenty about it in, in our zombie episode, right? I mean, there are plenty sure. of organisms that, um, you know, that can manipulate their hosts. I mean, we see it across the tree of life, even in humans. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's possible. And you think if a symbiote has the ability to communicate with a host, you know, in their own language, in their head, right, manipulating different parts of their brain to such an intricate, you know, in such an intricate way, I mean, why wouldn't they be able to, you know, to manipulate them? Yeah, and I mean, the, the addiction factor is definitely something that's there. I mean, we see that manifest itself even in the films and the comic books. I, I remember in Spider-Man 3 when... Spidey finally figures out how to take down Venom in their last battle. He basically traps him in this prison of metal rods and, uh, you know, through the cognitive dissonance of the the sound bouncing off of the rods and, and creating kind of this unsustainable atmosphere, the Venom entity separates from Eddie Brock. But at the same time, once that happens, Spider-Man goes in to finish the symbiote by throwing one of uh, the Green Goblin's pumpkin bombs at him, and Eddie, in the extreme act of desperation, tries to come back to the symbiote and basically hurls himself into the symbiote's embrace right before the bomb detonates, and they both basically get obliterated. Oh, man. So it's pretty crazy. And, you know, if that kind of lends itself to evidence saying something even neurochemically has changed because of the relationship and you can't possibly imagine surviving and living your life in any other fashion. It's a pretty remarkable and also horrifying thought to come to a realization to. Yeah, I mean, I think it really sort of speaks to the power of this this idea of symbiosis, right? You know, as a, you know, like when it comes to, when it comes to biology. You know, but I, I mean, that's a pretty, you know, we're talking about a pretty like dark turn to, you know, what is, I think most of the times a pretty dark storyline, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, I think what really intrigues us about Venom is, you know, the fact that you, that these two parts come together and form this whole that's greater than either of them is separately, right? I mean, you basically get new form, new function, you get, you know, all these, you know, new superpowers and so on. Yeah, so this sort of brings up this basic question that can symbiosis actually lead to superpowers in a way? Like, can it produce novel forms that are not seen outside of symbiosis? So let's hear what John has to say about this. In the case of Venom, right, when the this alien symbiote infects Tom Hardy's character, Eddie Brock, mm-hmm. Brock gets all of these, like, very you know, specialized superpowers that he never had before. Yeah. You know, so in nature, does symbiosis ever lead to like novel form and function? Yeah, all the time. I mean, that's, I, you know, I think that's sort of why, it's sort of why beneficial symbiosis happens, right? You, you know, if, if you take, if you just think about animals and bacteria generally, so animals in general have a pretty limited metabolism, like the kind of stuff they can eat is fairly limited. Um, you know, the animals can't make half of the amino acids they need to survive, right? Mm-hmm. A- animals need a bunch of vitamins. These are things that that 
that a long time ago the things that used to that you that became an animal used to be able to make but now the animals can't make them so the, you need to get these things in your diet and the reason we don't die is because we can eat a rich diet right but if you if you are a, an animal that doesn't have access to that in your diet then you need these bacteria or something like that right so that that's a really common thing so what bacteria if you contrast the animal metabolism so very limited you need to eat a rich diet you can only do certain things bacteria can live anywhere they can grow on almost anything and they have these really collectively they have this really amazing metabolism where they can basically do anything so they're a source of a lot of novelty so what animals do is develop relationships with bacteria to get some of those abilities right so there's there's cases where insects will develop a relationship with a bacteria and that bacteria is defensive. It's helping the insect defend itself. It's making some toxic compound that makes other animals, but not the insect sick, right? So you can acquire defensive capabilities. You can acquire nutritional capabilities, all sorts of things. And that's, that's a really general thing. It happens all the time. Oh. I mean, the, the situation with venom is, it's pretty similar actually to the way symbiosis works in nature. Yeah. And actually, I mean, actually surprisingly, I mean, it sounds like, sort of endosymbiosis like does lead to superpowers in a sort of real tangible way in, in no, nature. No, absolutely. It's, it's clear. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's a clearly a case of superpower acquisition. Yeah. No, that's very cool. Yeah, so we see that that relationship between the symbiote and Eddie in the comics and the movies is directly what leads to the superpowers that Venom has. Uh, whether it's in combat against machine gun fire that they're now impervious to, to even just the reflexive nature that the symbiote kind of kicks into gear to protect its host from harm that maybe even the host isn't aware of. So it's pretty incredible that that relationship can actually be beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and yeah, even, you know, I mean, like John said, in the real world, we see that, you know, symbiosis can lead to novel defenses. It can lead to new abilities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, so much so that even, you know, ourselves, like obviously, you know, when we think about, you know, symbiosis, we, you know, we think about these sort of extreme examples, but who we are as animals, we are that way because of symbiosis, right? I mean, each and every one of our cells is a symbiotic relationship, right? The mitochondria that power our cells used to be free-living bacteria, right? Without those mitochondria, we would die. That's the very way that each of our cells produces energy, the energy that we use to do all of our biological processes, right? They're dependent on animals or they're dependent on organisms that used to be free living, right? Completely free of us. Yeah. When we look at the, the genetics of our mitochondria and the genetics of the rest of our cells, right? Those genes are actually very distantly related from each other. Uh, you know, our mitochondria, they've been passed down from mother to child, you know, many, 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 many generations all the way, you know, all the way back to, you know, the original instance of, um, of this symbiotic event, but you know, there's basically the merging of genomes that have evolved on completely different parts of the um, of the tree of life, and plants have taken this even a step further, right? Because their cells, right? I mean, they have their plant cells and their plant genomes, their nuclear genomes. 
Then they have their mitochondrial genomes, right, which is the result of a symbiotic event. But then they also have chloroplast genomes, which is the result of a different symbiosis, right? So that's three different organisms on three different parts of the tree of life that have combined in order to allow plants to do the amazing things that they do, right? In order to photosynthesize, right? Which then produces the oxygen that all of animals, you know, all the animals on the planet need to breathe and, uh, and produce their own energy. And the production of that energy is dependent on in- endosymbiosis. So, you know, symbiosis, I mean, in a very real sense is the, is the fabric that holds a fair bit of life on this planet together. And so what's interesting, too, is that in the comic book world, we see this faith and belief that symbiosis can lead to enhanced human potential manifested in this idea of the life foundation. And this is an organization that is introduced in both the comics and the latest Venom movie, where it's led by this guy named Carlton Drake. In the movies, he's kind of much more of a D-bag. He actually runs <laughs> tests on homeless people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the comic books, he uh, is basically part of this foundation that is established during the Cold War paranoia, uh, where basically, in the case of a doomsday event, what can they do to help high-profile elite clientele paying millions of dollars survive in the aftermath? And, you know, when you're tweaking human potential and thinking of ways to augment the human condition, that was the idea behind bringing in the symbiotes for testing on humans to see what the results could be in the ultimate desire of creating a combined entity that's more powerful than the original state of humanity. Yeah. So I mean, it seems like essentially this is like an extreme and not very well thought out solution to climate change, essentially. Right. It's like, oh, man, the, you know, climate is changing so quickly. All of these extreme weather events, heat waves and blizzards and so on and so forth. But if we can take an organism that is able to survive on an asteroid and can survive the vacuum of space and the deep freeze of you know of of space plus survive direct exposure you know to the sun and you know has all these extreme innovations and we can bond with that then you know we can basically handle all of the things that um you know that climate change will will throw our way at least this this sort of seems to be the you know the story in you know, in the in the most recent movie but all that being said, it's like, I mean, with all of this money, all the millions of dollars being poured into that research, maybe even billions of dollars, I mean, you could also just stop climate change. Sounds a lot easier than recycling, to me. <laughs> am I right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's terrible. Please recycle. Yes. Let's it not is. resort to evil, megalomaniacal plans of symbiosis and instead let's just separate our plastic. It's a it's a much simpler solution. Just separate our plastics. Just do let's, your part. Let's do that. So with that, man, I think we've had a great conversation. Uh, we 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 dug in deep. You know, talked about you know extremophiles and you know biology and the most extreme corners of our planet and what that can tell us about life on other planets potentially. And then 
a really deep on you know, I think we have a I think at least I have a much better understanding now of this you know the intimate interactions between different organisms be they beneficial or you know sometimes negative right when it comes to this idea of symbiosis altogether I think I have like a much deeper appreciation of the complexity and you know amazing creature that this venom symbiote must be yeah and even looking at it from the comic book perspective it's it's all about the relationships right like when you're talking about symbiosis and you're looking at the story of peter and eddie and even flash thompson uh, not the relationship isn't always the same with every host it each manifests some positives and some negatives and uh, you know at the end of the day it is about connection and when you find that perfect fit there's going to be some benefits for all so this was a lot of fun but before we leave we just wanted to take a minute and acknowledge the passing of a comic book giant stan lee who died november 12th just a couple of weeks ago stan lee was born stanley martin lieber in 1922 in manhattan and died right here in los angeles california at 95 years young uh, so Stanley played such a major role in comics and science fiction as we know it. He co-created some of the most iconic heroes in the Marvel Universe, including Spider-Man, X-Men, Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, and many, many, many others. His mark on this world will last for a very long time, and his absence will be sorely felt. So yeah, his contributions have been immeasurable and for so many people his work is what introduced us to the comic book world in the first place and it's how we got involved and connected to these stories and these characters uh, many of us having grown up with them through childhood so the the impact and, and, and sort of the um, lasting impression that it's made on so many people's lives will be unforgotten it's the reason, partially, why we're even here today delivering Absolutely. you the podcast experience that we're, we're, we're doing because uh, a lot of these characters have inspired us so much more beyond just the pages of the books that they were presented in. In large part, we, we owe certainly this that we're doing right now. Um, you know, and you know, a lot of childhood memories. Like, I mean, I got into comic books a little bit later. You know, but you know, I remember you know watching X Men and Spider Man as a kid, and all those experiences, like all those amazing feelings that you know you feel like waking up Saturday morning as a kid and like running to the TV to catch, you know those those Saturday morning cartoons. I mean that entire universe, like those feelings, like those those nostalgic moments that I I can look back on my childhood and you know think of so fondly. A lot of that is due to to Stan Lee and. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that. Even though I never got to, to meet the man, I'm very, very grateful that I was able to share in his vision for uh, for the Marvel Universe. So to Stan Lee from the Biology of Superheroes podcast, uh, we say rest in power and, uh, and excelsior. Excelsior. <laughs>